listening to the Enter Sad Men podcast. We're talking loud. Okay, good evening, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach fans. If you're listening to this, you might have tuned into the wrong podcast. Although, hang around until album three, and uh, you might find a little bit you like. Because this is the podcast for rock fans. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome again to the heavy metal co- podcast that is Enter Sad Men. And tonight we are with you for episode number nine, the only hard rock and heavy metal show that reviews and rates and ranks rock's greatest or maybe not so great albums, uh, because we are defining the definitive hard rock, heavy metal hall of fame. So here we are, boys. We're about to start Episode nine. Uh, I'm joined, by the way, by Mark and Steve. As usual, I'm Richard. Uh, before we announce today's uh, podcast, we just should go back and talk a little bit about last time, because last time we had the big homage to the little wizard himself, Ronnie James Dio, and uh, we reviewed Rainbows Rising, Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell and Dio's own Holy Diver. So, gentlemen, what were your reflections on last week? Well, once we got over Steve's stargazer issue, it it all went swimmingly, I felt. Um, So I gave my first 10 last week, first 10 to stargazer. And I think what surprised me about last week's show was just how weak by comparison so that's not it was weak but by comparison how weak holy diver ended up being when compared to rising and heaven and hell and and i think the other thing the other thing i took away from it was that you know heaven and hell was a is a uh an enormous album in all sorts of ways and yet barely made a dent in the you know uh, when trying to get into the top three of the Hall of Fame, so um, I think it just reinforces that being a top ten album, finding the top ten albums, that's going to be quite tough. But it was a good week; really enjoyed it, thoroughly enjoyed listening. Yeah, I was, I was just a bit surprised at how much Holy Diver had aged. I guess, Steve. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it was an episode that was. Um, if, you, if you've heard it, you know that these these two boys are the are the real Dio disciples, and I was the uh, the the impartial voice in all this mayhem that was going on. But, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed I mean, I don't know what the Stargazer issue is. It is what it is. That's out there on the airwaves. Everyone knows my view on that. Um, although, that said, both Rising and Heaven and Hell were, you know, are into the top 10 of our Hall of Fame, albeit a 24-team Hall of Fame at the moment. So, you know, early stages. Um, and, like, uh, yeah, Holy Diver is where it is, bottom three or something. And I think you summed it up best by saying, you know, there's just an awful lot of average tracks on there and two or three very good ones. And that's kind of pretty much what it was, wasn't it? But what I, what I did, what I would take away from, from last week is that, you know, because I really wasn't overly surprised that I liked Rising and I liked Heaven and Hell. All three of us liked them a lot and therefore scored them accordingly. And they find themselves in the top 10 in the Hall of Fame. But already a country mile behind Led Zepp Four which sets the pace. And now I'm looking forward and thinking, what albums out there, you know, we're very early into this, but what albums out there are going to get anywhere near cracking Led Zepp 4, given that all three of us have got to like them. All three of us have barely got to find any weak tracks. And I'm, and I'm thinking, 
you know, Metallica, the Black Album. I'm thinking Back in Black, Let There Be Rock. I, I, I can't think of more than, you know, I mean, we'll, the time will come and we'll put this to the test. But, you know, it looks a really good pace setter at the moment with a score that's going to take some, take some overhauling. Well, I think the, the other thing we said last week about um, these three, and in particular Dio not scoring so well, didn't we, was was the, uh, the the need for a number of strong personalities and influences in the band. Um, so that's what made, you know, Rising great. That's what made uh, Heaven and Hell great. But when essentially it was Dio doing what he wanted to do, that suffered. And I think it, you know, that, that, that if you look into the albums that are in the top 10 and particularly those amongst uh, in, in that top three, you know, think of Deep, well, we've got Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, Journey. Um, we've, had, we've all agreed that in those three albums and those three bands, everybody was at the top of their game. So what, what, I think what the other, that thing you need, the magic you need to get into the, the, the top 10 is the whole being more than the sum of its parts and each of those parts being bloody brilliant. Yeah, and, and that surprised me because when we came into this, I was kind of thinking it would be really, you know, there are loads of top 100s or top 250s out there that all have Led Zeppelin for at the top. And wouldn't it be great to have a list that didn't? But I'm not sure this is going to be the one. No. Well, maybe maybe, maybe this episode is the one that will surprise us all uh, as we move into our Broxit special. I dare say the first of many Broxit specials. Um, because we're yeah we're heading into heading into mainland Europe. When I say mainland Europe. It's not quite. You'll get it. You'll understand what I mean when we get there. Um, it's non-UK Europe. Let's put it that way. Um, three bands, and the big surprise is that none of us chose the Scorpions, which I would imagine is the first thing that any of you thought would happen straight away. But um, that's not all we're doing. Um, so yeah, we're off across the channel tonight. We're we're stuck in the eighties. We're doing three albums, and the first of which is. Thin Lizzy's Thunder and Lightning from 1983, which was followed just a few months later by Accept's Balls to the Wall. And we will round off episode nine with Ingwe J. Malmsteen's 1988 release, Odyssey. So I hope you enjoyed that uh, little taster of uh, what we'll be listening to tonight. Uh, As always, we review these albums in the order in which they were released, which means that Mark is first up with his choice for tonight, the Irish, or at least mostly 
Irish Band, Thin Lizzy, With Thunder and Lightning. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, so I chose Thin Lizzy's Thunder and Lightning. And yes, yes, Richard, if I was being purist about it, I would have gone for, you know, one of the first sort of three or four of their albums. But I've gone for this one. And the reason that I've gone for this one, quite apart from the fact that I have a particular view of it, is that uh, this was the point at which I became aware, aged 17, 18, that John Sykes was a guitar god. This, remember, predates by four years his recruitment to Whitesnake and the kind of extraordinary impact he had on that band as they went and conquered America. This was a band, Thin Lizzy, that was on its knees. Phil Lynott had got to the point where the creative differences were such he didn't really want to go on with it. He was at his wit's end creatively. I think he felt that he was empty. He had nothing more to give. He was obviously on a, a downward spiral, a worsening downward spiral into drink and drugs. And uh, the whole thing was a mess. The whole thing was a mess. And he recruits John Sykes, and suddenly, for the first time in their history, they become a five-piece band. Um, I heard, the first thing I heard from this album was Cold Sweat, which I think was the single. And then I saw them, believe it or not, playing a live show at a place called the Town and Country Club in Hitchin, uh, which was televised on, I think, BBC Two. And they were such a, a an extraordinary live band. I mean, I never saw them in the flesh, which is a, a a source of huge regret to me. But you could see just on the screen just what energy and vibrancy there was. So this was a band that really came to life and existed in a live uh, live environment. And I went out and I I bought Thunder and Lightning, and I bought it for Cold Sweat, and. Like a lot of albums that I discovered around, you know, between the ages of about 15 and 20 odd, I started off track one, side two, because that was Cold Sweat. Um, and I never really paid that this album much attention beyond that single track. And it took years, actually, for me to come around to, to revisit it and play it in the order in which it was meant to be played. Um, I, I just felt the, you know, the riff on Cold Sweat was brilliant. The lyrics were preposterous, but that didn't matter. Um, and it was just this kind of thundery, thundering, chunky riff fest. And the rest of the album isn't like it. And I wanted Cold Sweat times nine or ten. And I didn't get Cold Sweat times nine or ten. I got Cold Sweat times one. And so I kind of abandoned the album. And then, so I've come back to it now. A few weeks ago, Steve kind of went into paroxysms of ecstasy over over Doomsday for the Deceiver. Um, I don't want to do that. I'm really interested to know what you two thought of it. And then we'll come back to what I thought of it in a bit. I thought it was an absolutely fantastic album. Seriously fantastic album. It's their... um... I noticed it was their 12th and effectively what would be their final studio album. And while I was loading it up on Spotify, I couldn't, I was drawn to a quote, which I was reading as, you know, you're tapping in the pages, trying to do a little bit of research. And the quote that caught my eye was from um, 
the co-manager, Chris O'Connell, who was on his way out of this band that was an utter tumult. And he said oh, he, he had to go because he couldn't see a once brilliant band turn into crap before my eyes. Those were his parting words. And then we know the story. You've, you've you know, highlighted the issues that Linnet had with his lack of – the creative juices had dried up and the drugs had kicked in, as they had with, you know, others as well, Scott Gore notably. And um, this just looked like a band that was kind of out of time and, yeah, destined for the scrap heap of rock where it would – where the obituaries, I dare say, would have been very mixed. And then you get this <laughs> – and seriously, I was absolutely blown away. I know what you say about Cold Sweat, and also uh, add the title track to that in terms of, um, you know, the, the proper rock tracks. But what a wonderful, balanced album. What an incredible array of different things going on here from a band that was so much more, well, they clearly weren't a metal act, as we well know, but for, for, a, for a hard rock act, this, this, this was a really impressive show of dexterity. I think it's an absolutely sensational piece of work. I really do. What amazed me when I, when I was reading into all of this is, is is the fact that this was 1983. And um, and actually, you know, Thin Lizzy, well, I mean, their first album was 1971. Jailbreak, I think, was it 76? And I'd, they were ahead of their time. They were completely ahead of their time. And I think, and again, and I think this album is ahead of its time. And it's aged really, really well. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it's great. Okay, so they start absolutely as they mean to go on with this album, with this track, Thunder and Lightning, the title track, track one, and it just makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up every time. And it's about it's about the songwriting, it's about the lyrics, it's about... Because you, I've said in the past, I don't like tracks that are 100 miles an hour this is 200 miles an hour and it is absolutely brilliant this, this is my favorite track on the album it's just relentless wonderful and relentless um god it's an exciting track god damn yeah i mean i was expecting a car crash because you know this this was a car crash of a band wasn't it at that stage for a kickoff track i mean that's um that's welcome to the show isn't it it doesn't get better than that and so they go from this hell for leather full frontal attack to just one of the most clever songs this is my favorite track on the album <laughs> i absolutely adore this track this is this is the one um and it's just got this lovely bridge and hook on it and every time i i hear this and the same with the next two actually i feel so sad that we were robbed of linnet when we were because this is he everyone says yeah he was the the poet of his day and, and you kind of go yeah of course but as he was he was an absolute poet and you can hear it through all of their back catalogue and you know all of that charm and the lyricism and the creativity and he pissed it all away and it's just a tragedy yeah, it is it is I mean, this, this, this is absolute classic Lizzie for me, and uh, and, and and classic Linnet vocals. The sp- again, we talk, we've talked so much in a lot of good songs about the spaces in between, and this you've just got the driving drums and the bass, and everything is just floating over the top. And his and it, 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 the, the way he structures the the lyrics and his lines in this is uh, just brilliant. 
Yeah. And, and down, down his drum work, it's incredibly simple, isn't it? There's nothing complex about this backbeat at all. It's real simplicity, but mm. boy, it drives it along. How important? Yeah. How important is he to this track? Yeah. And also, again, we go back to Linus' delivery of lyrics that you didn't see it coming. It's little things, isn't it? And you talk about him being, you know, the poet. I've never heard that said of Phil in it at all because this is a band that's, you know, not massively on my radar down the years. You know, you remember the big singles. You remember seeing on top of the pops. Um, you remember thinking, yeah, this is one cool guy. But yeah, brilliant deliverer of great lyrics. And this is a it's, it's a sensational follow up. Difficult track to follow, track one. And this is huge. So we're on to um, the sun goes down, which is one of one of two songs on this album that bring um bring a lump to my throat because of what we know happened to Phil Linnett. And you know, I, I don't remember at the time the clear mental state he was in, a physical state he was in, and and the fact that within Three years was it? And, and the, 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 yeah, there was stuff after Thin Lizzy, but it didn't matter. He was a he was a shell of a man, and he was a broken man. And he was gone, and this was the only single I think of this album. So therefore, the last single that Thin Lizzy ever released. And how sad is that? Because it's an absolutely beautiful piece of work. It's such a such a good song. Again, Brian down his drum work. It's just tapping out a simple drum beat, which everything revolves around and works too. And again, it's 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 Linnet's voice showing yet more, showing another side to him as a singer, and it's um, well, it's a beautiful piece. It's it's such a thoughtful song, isn't it? So introspective and clearly autobiographical. He is the man, he's the demon in in the song in his own life. And you're right; it's in the context of what then happened. It's a really moving song. It's a very simple song. You know, I remember the first time I, I heard it, I thought it was going to go somewhere, you know, and then it would break into something, and it doesn't. It's really atmospheric. I, th- I think it's great, great, great track. Great track three, really, and I think really good place and position on the album. If, there, if there is one thing about it I just don't quite like, it's the, the guitar solo, which I know you're looking at me now as if to say, well, no. absolute bollocks. But I just think, I just think, I just think he slightly misjudges it. It goes very screamy. I don't know. It just it didn't seem that sort of song. But no, I think you're right. Actually, I hadn't thought about it. But yeah, I can hear the guitar solo in my head now. Um, now that, so me kind of frowning was me trying to remember the solo. And yes, you're right. It does. Um, it starts off as very plaintive, but you're right. It 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 overreaches itself. No, I don't, I, I'm I'm pretty comfortable with it. Gary Moore wouldn't have done it that way. Neither would Midjur. So the Holy War, track four, great start with the bass and then the, the build. It's following three amazing tracks. And I, yeah, I think, again, I, it, this feels classic Lizzie to me. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I like this track. I wouldn't say I didn't, I don't love it as much as the previous three, if I'm honest. Steve? No, I just think it's exceptional. I just, I just think it's um, the fourth and final track on a side that's got four just incredibly different tracks it, to, to, to show that versatility in, in, in on one side of an LP is, is extraordinary. I think it's brilliant. Again, those, those harmonies, Linnet is, is just a superstar and, and his delivery on everything in this is, is, is perfect. So I think it's a brilliant track. And Rich made the point earlier about this being ahead of their time. I think they were out of time. I think there was never a time for Thin Lizzy because they were so different, you know, yeah. They could have been any time or no time. It's you know almost impossible to pigeonhole, either time-wise, style-wise, anything about them. 
It's what makes him so special. This is his poetry, isn't it? It's, it's talking about the kind of destructive um, effect that religion can have on society. And, you know, there, there's a lot of social commentary in it, but it's not preachy. Should we talk about production? And um, I'd, I'd never heard of Chris Sangaridis before. Yeah, so um, I was going to kind of give him a shout out at the end, actually, because I, I think I think there's an awful lot of um, wrangling that's gone on here to to bring the band kind of. This is a very different sound for Thin Lizzy. This this was although you can hear you can hear Thin Lizzy through all of it. It's um, it's not a typical Thin Lizzy album. I think there was quite a lot of resistance from certain parts within certain parts of the band for them to become more of a hard rock act, which is what this really was, or it was that, that was the attempt. Um, I think, yeah, he's, he's, he had a good track record. You know, he, he was involved, wasn't he in Tiger's Pantang? Uh, I've got a feeling he was also involved in Y&T. I'm sure he did one of the early Y&T albums as well. So, you know, he'd been around. He's got, got good, good pedigree. Sadly lost him a couple of years ago, age 61. The, the bands he, he worked with, YMT, UFO, uh, Thin Lizzy, Therapy, um, Rock Goddess, we've talked about before, Choir Boys, Girls' School, yeah, Gary Moore, you mentioned Aussie. But then he's also, uh, and I wonder if this had an impact on the, the, the production, but it, it, what, he didn't only work with, with rock bands. He worked with, he worked with uh, Joan Armour Trading. He worked with uh, Depeche Mode. Uh, so, so I, I think you know whether that had an influence as well in terms of the, as you said, as Steve says, this thing is you weren't your your standard hard rock band, so that could have had an influence on the sound of this album as well. So, track one, side two, Cold Sweat, and the only song, amazingly, the only song that John Sykes was involved in writing. I think when I listen to this, I think, what could they have? been next could thin lizzy have been on the verge had they not split at this point could they have been on the verge of releasing their own 1987 i mean the, the lyrics are not classic linnet they're they're a bit kind of frivolous and superfluous but i mean god this this packs a punch i think yeah i mean it, the, the chords are just don't they what, what i also like is and it'd be a bit fascinating to know about the running order because it just feels to me that they, if they'd agreed a running order, they've held this back and made side one four tracks, so that when you turn the, the LP over, you'd get belted in the head. <laughs> Steve, what's your view? I, I, I think I, I love it. I love the lyric. I mean, stone cold sober and stone cold sweat running down the back of my neck. I mean, every there's so many chants on this album anyway, and that's certainly another one. I mean, they brought Sykes in specifically to go heavier, didn't they? I mean, there's no secret about that. And, um, yeah. you know, and that, that's evidenced in this and two or three other tracks. I don't know about Sykes as a songwriter, um, but if he's had a major part to play in this, then he's clearly a very good one because it's, you know, it's it's a it's a perfect, as, as you say, it's a, as Rich says, it's a perfect way to start side two. And you, you're already looking forward to the rest of it on the strength of this. Talking of which, someday she is going to hit back. Uh, and for me, this is this is kind of the curio on the album. I mean, I, I don't dislike it at all. I, I, in fact, I actively like it. It's got some interesting harmonies, but it is it is probably the one that is less 
less aligned with the with the rest of the the album i would say um which is no bad thing but it's probably when we come to do the highs and lows this is probably my low point but on a very otherwise very very good album yeah it's quite interesting because i i don't actually know how you do align yourself with the rest of this album so you know what i mean fair point point. to me the fact that it is different in so many ways but then so are half a dozen others and to to that extent i absolutely take your point um it is a curio yeah and it's not it's yeah one of my two weaker songs on the album certainly but you know hard to find fault with and the other the other thing of course what will always save any average track that thin as you produce is phil Lynott himself isn't it and there are many vocalists you couldn't listen to and when they do bad tracks you listen to them even less because he's such a compelling singer it's hard it's very difficult to find fault in anything they do because he's so listenable into the guts of side two now with baby please don't go i love this track i think it's just loads of fun great harmonies in it it's got a great groove pumps along quite nicely uh, but it's interesting i suppose that's the other thing is it's interesting that the high the the most prominent voice in the harmonies is linnets i don't know there's a problem I, I, I just listen to it now i think john sykes is whittling throughout and actually i kind of wished he'd shut up a bit and just it, and this could this could have sounded a bit more standard thin lizzy and i think i'd have enjoyed it more if he'd shut up a bit yeah, I mean, what's not tonight is it? Yeah, I get the, I get the, the little holes you pick in. It's, um, it's not my favourite track on the album by a long way because we moved to my favourite track of the album by, well, not by a distance because there's too many good contenders. We're on to bad habits. This is just the coolest song on this album by a country mile and one of the coolest albums that coolest songs that any hard rock band. Could write God Leonard could write a rock and roll song, couldn't he? So you've got the dueling guitars all the way through and the rhythm and the feel and just these sensational lyrics. Boys will be boys, girls will be trouble, and I'm a man of bad habits. I've seen you walking down the street with another girl. Oh man, I had to have it. I mean, it's just so sleazy. It's just brilliant. He just spit sleaze. But set against this lovely kind of, you know, rock and roll number. It's it's genius. A little short of genius. His vocal delivery is brilliant because you say the, the, the sleaze comes from uh, in, in the ver- in the particularly the first verse. He's he's really close to the microphone and singing very quietly, which is what you say. You <laughs> that's where it is. It's almost it's almost as if he's whispering in your ear, isn't it? And that that really makes it. But it becomes a different song halfway through it, and then it jumps back in, and and that's. That's what I, I love about Thin Lizzy generally. I think it's, uh, you know, it, this album's got it in spades. It's that they're not afraid just to mix it up and do something new. Well, other other bands mix it up, but few bands would do it in the same track and do it as well as this lot. I mean, and, and, you know, a lot of bands take a chance on trying to rock and roll number and it just turns into a, you know, train wreck. Um, this is brilliant. This is so sophisticated, so mature just an incredible songwriting unit it's a thing of joy uh final track it, it's it's a good good track solid finish i don't think it stands out in as much as um the previous track or some of the others on this album great vocals from phil yeah it's, it's, a, it's a good finish i think i think it's i think it's an awesome track on so many levels and um, musically there's so much cleverness in this track 
the passing through the keys done in that sort of stabbing rhythm that makes it sound quite unstable. Here we go. That is phenomenal. But beyond the musicality, it's, again, this is the last song on the last Thin Lizzy album he wrote. And I quote, Papa, I'm drinking for an overload, overload, overload. The gun in my pocket is all ready to explode. Papa, I'm dying of an overdose, overdose, overdose. I tried to warn you, don't come too close. I mean, I'm a man in tears. You know, how prophetic. And within three years, the man was dead. Oh, it's just, it's, it's, it's just so sad, beyond sad. And it's, I think it's, um, you know, if you want an epitaph, if you want an obit, this track's as good as any. Yeah, that's a really, a really good point. Really good point. I suppose one last observation is I've read a number of reviews of this album and I think I'm listening to a completely different album to most people, apart from the three of us, who all seem to agree on its merits. And I don't think that's a coincidence. So what is it about this album that other people didn't like? So there we go. Finished kind of talking about it. It's time to find out what everyone thought, um, the high points, the low points. Um, let's start with uh, with you, Richard. Um, highs and lows. No deep valleys of low points, um, but I think I think the track already mentioned that didn't quite stand up against its company was, uh, was someday she's going to hit back. For me, nothing beats the opening track. We talked a lot, lots about it when the sun goes down. Brilliant, cold sweats. Brilliant, but um, they are they're pipped by by thunder and lightning, it, it, which is absolutely fantastic. Okay, yeah. Well, if, if if seven out of ten is a is a low, then baby, please don't go um, is a low, and I don't think seven out of ten is a low, is it? And the highs, yeah, like Richard, I absolutely adore um, the opening track, the title track, and I love the sun goes down. But um, as I think I've made clear. <laughs> Uh, they play second fiddle to Bad Habits, which is, you know, a song I take on a desert island all day long. Well, I'm with Richard in terms of the um, the less good, um, which is um, someday she is going to hit back. Uh, but and I think I said this during the conversation, my high of many, many, many highs on this album uh, is this is the one. Okay, so that's Thunder and Lightning, 1983, Thin Lizzy's final album, though they didn't know it at the time, uh, from the amazing Phil Lynott, John Sykes, Darren Wharton, Brian Downey and Scott Gorham. Overwhelming thumbs up, I think, which brings us a bit further into 1983 for album two. Steve's choice for the evening is the 1983 offering, I think it's the fifth studio album from Accept, and it's balls to the wall. Steve. Opening album sleeve notes. So this is, yeah, the fifth album released in December 1983, following on from the equally stunning Restless and Wild, which was out a year before. And really, when you break it down, they've done loads of work. Um, those were the two standout albums. I don't think there's really too much debate about that. Um, for me, this takes me back to 1984, when I first met Mark, and we, we were played this... He would have introduced me to this in his flat in Hastings where we were uh, studying at the time. We would have, and he would have introduced it to me for two reasons. Reason one was the album cover, which we'll come to, I dare say, at some point. And reason two was the title track. Um, and let's make no bones about it. This is a great album and it's got 
great tracks. It's got some quite ordinary tracks, three or four good tracks, two or three very good tracks, and one just outstanding track. And, you know, I shall make no secret. I've I've given a few tens out already in in this odyssey. And, you know, cards on the table. There's another one coming. Um, So if if Balls to the Wall, I'm thinking album-wise, would it get into my top 100 albums of all time? Yeah, probably. Um, Would Balls to the Wall, the track, get in my top 20 singles of all time, without a shadow of a doubt? Would it get into my top five mullet anthems of all time very very definitely because that's exactly what it is it's just an it's just an uber european anthem on an unimaginably brilliant scale um and that's what i remember most about this album as i say lots of other good things going on um in a band that was fronted by the charismatic udo dirk schneider um we did the little man ronnie james dio last week well here's another little man um, just slightly wider, um, with the, then the twin guitars of Herman Frank and Wolf Hoffman, uh, Peter Baltes on bass, Stefan Kaufman on drums. Um, and this was a band that had been around for Donkers years. Um, indeed, Udo had first formed a band in the late 60s. Hoffman joined them in the mid-70s, except were, were formed. And, you know, we think of them as a household name, but really they hadn't actually got out of germany till about 1980 81 when they toured um with judas priest and so we didn't really get to appreciate how good they were until restless and wild then come late 83 we had this and uh, welcome to the show ladies and gentlemen it's um and if this opening track isn't one of your all-time favorite opening tracks then you know then you're dead i'm afraid i i first heard balls to the wall um, and and saw that album cover um, leafing through all the records in the uh, University of Warwick radio station where I was doing uh, the rock show. And uh, I'd never heard it before. Saw the cover, thought, well, got to put this on. As Steve says, put the needle down on the first track, and that was it. <laughs> um, and I've loved it ever since. So, yeah, great choice, Steve. Yeah. I mean, you can't go far wrong. Although, if we can just rewind a little to one of your opening statements, I'll be absolutely honest with you. When you, and I knew you were going to pick this album. I knew, but it was obviously you were going to pick it. And it came through as I expected, you know. And I thought, he's picked the wrong one. He's picked the wrong album. I thought it was a more consistent album. Um, so I thought, yeah, I thought, oh God, Steve's Steve's picked the wrong accept album. This is this is a schoolboy error on his part. And then I put it on Spotify, and it started. And I went, no, he's not picked the wrong one. He's definitely not picked the wrong one. This is absolutely the right album. Absolutely the. Right. I mean, I love Metal Heart, and I I actually think there are three great albums that, okay. that yeah. Delivered. Well, that's yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I, I thought Metal Heart they were just veering off in a direction I didn't actually want them to go in, but um, just because of <laughs> just because of the solidness of the two that had gone before it, I, I adore Restless and Wild, and um, actually track for track, it, you could argue it's probably possibly strong brilliant album you know german metal it is absolute finest but it's it's also you know it's german metal with a with with something to say you know this is this is a, a, an album that is with the exception i think of one or two tracks 
actually about oppression. I mean, it, it is. And when you think, I mean, we're recording this for those of you who are kind of listening to this in in twenty thirty eight. Um, you know, we're recording this at a time of of you know possibly the greatest civil disease um, that we've seen in generations. You know, and, and a time when equality is very much in the public consciousness, and quite deliberately, except have written songs about the oppressed. And I think um, I think that was quite remarkable, actually, in 1983, particularly given society's views of things like homosexuality, you know, in particular. And, and also, coming from a German band, less than 40 years after a period in which they had been very much oppressors so i think yeah as a race as a, as a country so i think um i think it's a really interesting album socially which is not something i ever expected myself to say about german heavy metal really yeah and and, and interestingly and I, I'd, I'd be surprised if the answer to this is yes but if you've been if you've listened to later udo or dirk schneider stuff then um he doesn't lose it he's, he's still got he's still got things to say and he's still going strong now grand old age of 68 still performing and there's words of, you know, except, well, they've split up countless times, as all these old bands do, but they, they're definitely going to get back. They would have got back together this summer, but for coronavirus and, um, you know, festival cancellations. It's a band I'd love to see again, even at their grand old age, because you, you've got a fancy they'll belt out a tune live. And so we're off on um, track one, which, as I've said, is the, is the, uh, is the title track, Bulls to the Wall, which is... Um, Simply extraordinary. What? What? If any, anyone who doesn't know this track, and you, you, it's hard to describe. You've got to listen to it. What you've also got to do is go and watch the video of it. And if you've not seen it before, go and watch the official video of it. If, I don't know whether you boys have. Mark, have you seen the official video? No. Well, a, it's about four minutes long, so they've clearly missed out some bits, and it's obvious which bits they've missed out. The famous nut crack. And Udo's rap, which is, you know, different class. But, yeah, watch the official video. <laughs> Stick it on mute. That's what you've got to do. And it's like it's like something out of Spinal Tap. So you have got, you've got Hoffman, Frank and, and Baltes standing there in classic Euro metal poses. They've all got the, the flying Vs, the tripod stances, big mullets, you know, the synchronised head banging, the drummer behind with the big roars as the camera comes on in. <sighs> All that. And then, so you're expecting, if you don't know, except if you don't know this band, you know nothing about this band. So you're expecting in this video, you're on mute. All you can see is this thing and you're laughing your head off. This is pure spinal tap without the volume. You're waiting to come stage left, a Bruce Dickinson figure, a James Hetfield figure. What you get, of course, <laughs> is the little man. It's little Udo. It's like a weevil. For those of you who have an older of an older generation, in, in full combat gear, with his glove and his shades on and his crop top, and if it wasn't funny already, you're now you're now laughing your head off. I'm being desperately unfair because, of course, um, Udo is 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 a god, absolutely a god, and um, yeah. So that's one for if you've got a spare few minutes. But boys, talk to me about this track. Every time I listen to this track, I, I turn it up. <laughs> It doesn't matter how loud it already is; it just has to go up another notch. It is a, a it is a colossal, a colossal track, isn't it? This became. I, I did just a quick spot check around Setlist FM. This has been their encore song since from the very first concert they played 
once this had been released. So they knew that they had this anthem on their hands, and my God, they leveraged it. Brilliant song. It is brilliant. Richard, I take it you love it as much as we do. I've I've been playing it regularly forever. I I listen to it, I probably listen to it once or twice a week. We just listen to the bit where the... uh... Lined up, it's a very primitive video. There's a lot of headbangers lined up against the wall. They look like they're having a wee, but they're clearly headbanging against the wall because you can only see them from the back. Honestly, you've got to see this thing. And, of course, they're bringing the wall down. And, you know, lo and behold, a few years later, you know, Udo was right. There's a slightly uncomfortable moment, though, when when what appears to be a number of jackboots enter. Yes. I would love to know, and I I don't know if you two managed to to find it, but I, I I tried a load of searches to find out just what they used to get that crunching sound. Uh, and I couldn't find it anywhere. So if anyone's listening to this and they know, please do send us an email at uh, info.entersadmen.co.uk because we would love to know. Right. And because we talk too much, we've talked through Balls to the Wall. That's how good a track that is. And we've moved on to from the um, – is this from the Sublime to the Ridiculous or the other way around? We're now into London Leather Boys. And so we bring up one of the other themes about this album, possibly, arguably which is the very gayness that was um, associated with with this album. But um, they insist is nonsense. They always did. There's a kind of homo... I mean, again, to, to, to put this into some sort of context, you've got to look at the album cover, first things first, which is, if you've not seen I'm sure you, you can Google it, you can see it's a man, or part of a man, um, in leather, or leathered up, with a ball in his hand, um, and lots of hair, and it's all very, it's all very homoerotic. And London Leather Boys, they insist that this song was about bikers rather than gays, and it may well be the case. And quite frankly, I couldn't care less anyway. All I want to know is whether it's a good track. And on my scale of tracks on this album, in which Bulls to the Wall is up on a pedestal and outstanding, down to indifferent. This actually falls into the indifferent level. And I don't know whether you boys agree, but it's just not one of my favourites at all. Mark, shaking your head. Oh, I love this song. I love it. I, 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 it's got a great bass line. Um, I mean, it's, uh, again, it's about prejudice, isn't it? It's a song about prejudice, about how, you know, uh, bikers or, you know, greasers or whatever you want to call them, is how they, they were perceived and judged kind of as a, as a, a community. But it's got it's got some really interesting stuff going on it. Yeah, I, I would have thought this would have been one you loved. And, and going back to the album cover, I, I'm thinking there's a gimp mask somewhere that we don't see. <laughs> yeah, and luckily there's a lot more we don't see as well because yeah. obviously enough. Well, we nearly do, don't we? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, on the the the, the whole gay thing. I mean, you look, look at the lyrics to this. You know, boys dressing leather, girls dressing lace, see the easy riders, they're roaring down their way, they need to give full speed ahead. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's about bikers and ladies in lace, as far as I can see. But it, I mean, it's funny how, you know, with the, I mean, they wanted to, I think, to make an impact, didn't they, with the, mm. with the cover? Was it, was it the, the Americans? Wolf Hoffman said, you Americans are so uptight about this. In Europe, it was never a big deal. We just wanted to be controversial and different and touch on these touchy subjects because it gave us good press and it worked fabulously. 
German humour. I think the other thing to say is that one. I think one reason why maybe people think, oh no, it's about it's about homosexuality, it's about gay gay people, is partly it's the cover which kind of leads you down a path, but also it's it's not a typically heavy biker song. Is it? It's um, it's a bit bouncy and a bit kind of you could say well, it's a bit effeminate in some ways. So I don't know. Yeah, it's almost a bit cheesy. But then you know they're German, aren't they? And, and there was an awful lot of cheesy rock out there, and this was one of their cheesy numbers. I, you know, I've got nothing wrong with it because it's a great album. But it's not. Um, it's it's not it's not of a level we'll see further down the, the playlist. Talking of which, we now fight it back. Track three. I always used to write this off, um, and we've said a few times, haven't we, that when we're listening to these albums for this, as forensically as we are, you tend to hear different things. And actually, this track, which I would have... If you'd said to me before last week, rate all of the tracks on Balls to the Wall, this would probably have ranked quite low. But actually, I, I really I really like it. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in, in this song, p- particularly towards the pound. It's only with repeat listenings, l- listening, repeat listening, that, um, that it all comes to the fore. It's a bit messy at the front, I think. It's a kind of it's a classic except number. It is rock solid, isn't it? With you know Udo doing that crescendo thing, just working himself up into a frenzy as he does. But the the chorus is unbelievably simple. A, a lot of what they did was unbelievably simple, set against this driving backbeat. And I can almost forgive him this kind of braying donkey bit after the first chorus as well, which is um, quite the most bizarre thing. But um, yeah, I, th- I think it's a really good track. Really good track, really strong. For me, it, um, I, I can hear I, whether it's Judas Priest influences. Don't know. I can hear Judas Priest in the in the in the main guitar riff um, certainly. But then uh, you know, there's almost some punky elements to it as well. So uh, yeah, it's a good track. It's a good track. So we're on to um, the fourth track, which is Head Over Heels. It's a good track. It is a good track. But what they didn't have back in 1983 was Google Translate which is a bit unfortunate because can I just can I just kick off the lyrics late at night in the park I saw them slipping in the dark for heaven's sake what's going on it's like someone is here I mean what does any of that mean you're just thinking Udo you're just a beautifully principled man with so many good things going for you and and you're a songwriter you're a genius you've got morals and fiber in your balls and you sing about big things that's bollocks. That's complete and utter gibberish. But um, <laughs> but that aside, and, and as I say, I've, I've forgiven this. This is best part of forty years ago, long before the internet. It's fine. It's a good track. Yeah, I think it's got a fantastic groove. Likes a lot. It's got nice, nice guitar work just sitting underneath the lyrics as well, like little lead flourishes in it. I think I think it's a great track. Yeah, really enjoy it. Okay, so you want to. You want to close out side one as you started it, and we, we're given that opportunity with losing more than you've ever had, which is, um, I love this no-nonsense intro. Just get your, get yourself head-banging. It's just a great rhythm, a great beat, and it just continues through the track. It's um, The track itself, it, it dribbles a bit, but then um, they change it up a gear at the end, and it's. Um, I think it's a good way, good way to close side one, personally. If you didn't have Balls to the Wall on this album, this would be my favourite track. I think it's, it is typical, except it's, it is that, you know how much I like a relentless riff. So it's got that relentless riff going on in the background, that backbeat going on 
brilliant. Um, and I think it's all, also it's got it's got variation in the stuff. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. That is what the band is. That that is what he is. But this is more considered vocally, I think. And I think it's also quite mournful, which I quite like. And and I also like it's a quite a clever song because it's not it's not a love song. It's it's a it's a you're a fucking idiot because you had it and you lost it, mate. And now I've got it. So you know, I, I, I think it's a clever song. I really really like it. It's it's um, along with balls to the wall. It's one song that appears on every Spotify playlist that I've created. Richard, are you sharing our enthusiasm? Not as much. Yeah, as, as Mark said, I, I think um, the, his his restraint in the, particularly in the first half, he, uh, he lets it go a bit in the second half. It, I, I, I like that. Um, it, it's a, it's a good song, but I, I, for me, it's it, it's good. It's not wonderful. And so we're into side two. Um with love child which and yet again it's just it's an it's another perfect kickoff to a track it's just yet again they just knew how to find a hook a riff they just knew they're just so damn good at it they just draw you in and you just you just i mean the the, the less able will tap their feet i'll just bang my head i mean it's just um that's what they get you to do it's just so damned infectious i know udo's voice and he went with the first It'll split opinions, um, and there are, you know, clearly, clearly many, many vocalists whose um, whose voice splits opinions. But that aside, he is just accept, isn't he? I mean, and therefore, you, pardon, you just accept it. He is the band. His voice is everything. That it just works. It just, it just somehow seems to work. It shouldn't. He doesn't look like a rock star. He doesn't sound like a rock star. Just, but somehow, it just works perfectly. And um, yeah, I love Love Child. I think it's a great track. I love it. Yeah. Uh, it's one of one of four songs on the album that was um, that were staples in their live set for years and years, along with Head Over Heels, Turn Me On, and the title track. I think I love it in between the choruses. I think the chorus doesn't quite do it for me, but I, I, I love the fact. And you're right, Steve. This is a band that they 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 cut the shit and they just get on with it. And I, I love that about them. It's funny, isn't it? It, 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 it is, it's the riff. It's that chugging, flying V riff. What, what, you know, think about the Scorpions and, and Michael Schenker. Which is Turn Me On, and this is probably the one that um, we're, we're running out of steam now. I think we're all agreed. I don't know whether you agree with me or not, but I think we're. this is the point where, well, this is the point, first of all, where Udo tries to get sleazy and... He's just not a sex god, is he? Go on, Mark, what are you going to say? I can only think that in German, turn me on translates as wank me off. (laughs) That's my theory, because that's all this song is about. I know, I know. I can't wait to get you down on the dirty floor. I know it ain't a place, but come on and close the door. No, Udo. No, sorry, son. No, we're not going anywhere near you. Yeah, just it's just wrong, wrong on many levels. Have you got something against short vocalists, Steve? <laughs> because if it was some other, you know, if it was uh, Dave Lee Roth singing that, you'd be there quick as a bloody flash. Dave Lee Roth would not sing this. <laughs> And I'm also desperately trying to think of some small singers now when I can, other than Ronnie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, leave that one with me. Great riff, though. The, the, again, the, the, 
the 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 riff at the start of this. Uh, I mean, this is one of the things, isn't it, about uh, about except the 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 riffs were absolutely superb. And on we go into just well, I, I, I sound like a stuck record. Yet another trademark power opening, and this one's an absolute thumper. This is losers and winners, which. Well, go on, boys. What do you? I mean, it's it's just it's just off and running again, isn't it? Yeah. So basically, they they come out of um, turn me on. They grab you by the throat. They slam you against the wall, and they just keep punching you. That's what this is. And I love it. I mean, they can do this to me all night. Udo, if you want some of that, I'm all yours, mate. <laughs> the, the feeling of a bit a bit of Iron Maiden. This in terms of the the style of the song. Um, yeah, I, I like it. I like it. Although I, I can't to have a song this heavy and belting out, and he's advising you to write a letter. <laughs> uh, I, it seems a very British thing to do. Uh, I, I wasn't too sure of, so uh, it makes me smile whilst, whilst I'm listening to it as well. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me howl because the first time I heard it, I thought he said. The lyric goes, um, write a letter, and then the, the, the backing vocals come in. And I thought they said, what's a letter? And I was going to say, <laughs> you know what a letter is, surely. I mean, I know you're German, but, you know, you know what it is. It's, it's but it just sounded like, well, I think he said, write a letter, watch a letter. No, 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 no. It was like something out of Camberwick Green. But anyway. But it's, it's not just the write a letter. It's the write a letter. You'll feel better. <laughs> Life problem solved. Udo, Udo's just saying, look, look, Steve, Steve, get it off your chest. Just get it off your chest. <laughs> yeah. Come on, kids, don't do drugs. Write letters. <laughs> oh, genius. I'm never going to listen to this song again <laughs> quite the same way. Okay. So, so here we are with the penultimate track, Guardian of the Nights. Not quite the relentless start that we've got used to over the course of the album, but slightly more considered until this point when it just goes off again. Again, another brilliant riff, but I feel like we're flagging now. It's got quite a nice hook line in it, actually. This, but it's not. It, this feels like this feels like it's um, it's a filler to me. Yeah, I agree. It's, I mean, it's fairly. Not, not not bad track, but but it's more compared to the rest, fairly standard, straightforward. Um, yeah. And mentioning dispatches to the to the to the engine room, um, to Peter Bowser's on bass and Stefan Kaufman on drums. They've kept this album going, and even tracks as we're all flagging, they're flagging, but they're still keeping it going. And it's in its yeah, still a good listen, isn't it? There's not much to dislike about it. No, but it's never gonna. You're never gonna get excited about it either, are you? Like I say, it's got it's got quite a nice little hook line, but yeah, this album wouldn't have been poorer for not having it on there. And then, in a quirk of planning, having not had an instrumental start for the entire album, we now get two in two to fit to sign off. This is Winter Dreams, which is again kicks off with a bit of, a little bit of Spanish guitar in there, and then we get a bit of slide guitar. Though to be honest, it's um, it's well, I tell you what, it, it, I think it's a track that just wanders quite aimlessly. It's not great. And I'll go back to Restless and Wild. And you remember Restless and Wild, it finishes on such a high with Princess of the Dawn. And when I first heard this, I thought, oh, here we go again. You know, I, I can feel this coming into, this is just going to be such a good finish. 
And in fairness, it just really isn't. It just it's just a, a lullaby, a, a very heavy lullaby, but a lullaby nonetheless. And it's um yeah, it's okay. Just meanders, isn't it? Really doesn't really know where it's going. It's snowy outside, and I think they've got lost in it. <laughs> I quite like it. When I put this on this these last few days, listening to it, I was uh, again out on my bike with the wind in my hair, uh, and actually, it was it, I, I enjoyed listening to it. I, I think this is a um, yeah, driving around on a sunny winter's day with the top down song. Uh, I, yeah, I, I quite like it. Which kind of brings us to highs and lows. I don't think, I mean, we, we could almost not discuss the highs. I think you two might, might differ. So it's, what else was your, your higher point? I think, as I said in the, in the discussion, if Balls to, the Walls, Balls to the Wall wasn't on this album, my top track on this would be Losing More Than You Have Ever Had. Right. Yeah. Um, fight it back for me. Um, mm. It's right in their wheelhouse. It's what they do best, and that's an example of it. Um, but there's three or four tracks like that, you know. Um, it, it's just such a solid piece of work. But, yeah, a, a, a long way in arrears of the opener. Now in terms of the the weakest point, weaker point of the album for me? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean I, there's a couple that are just, you know, I mean, Guardian of the Night, Guardian of the Night would be, um, would probably be the, the, the weakest point for me. You know, I'm, I'm tiring now and... Uh, yeah, I could have ended it a track earlier. So for me, I think it is Winter Dreams, simply because I think if you're going to put a ballad on an album, it's got to be really, really good. And this isn't... I can take average when it's uh, you know an out-and-out rock song, but if you're Accept, you, you need to be finishing your albums with something like Princess of the Dawn. And this, for me, this is a... It's like well, we need we need ten tracks, so let's put let's stick that on at the end because that's what that's what we do in heavy metal, isn't it? We put a ballad at the end. Uh, I just think this is this is nonsense, really, for me. So there we go, our first taste of accept, and I'm sure we'll hear a lot more of them in our Enter Sad Men Odyssey because um, well, I love them to bits, and therefore they'll be, they'll appear again. I'm sure of that. And from Balls to the Wall, we now move on. We head north. We head into the Northlands. To meet, and I might allow Richard to pronounce this because I was going to call him Ingwi J Malmsteen, but Richard, apparently, I've got that wrong. Is that right? Well, I, I honestly wouldn't know. And apologies for uh, any any Swedish listeners. Um, we believe it's Ingve, but perhaps uh, if we've got that completely wrong, as we probably have, uh, yeah, do uh, do let us know. Yeah, let us know because obviously, when we do the rest of the back catalogue. Um, we'll want to pronounce it properly. Opening album sleeve notes. So this is a new discovery for me, as well as um, I think at least Steve. I think Mark was. Uh, we'll come back. I'll ask him in a minute. I think was familiar with uh, with this album. So this is a say Ingve J Malmsteen. Um, this is his fourth solo album. This album was released on the eighth of April, nineteen eighty-eight, on Polydor Records. And as well as Ingve on guitar, it featured uh, Joe Lynn Turner, ex of Rainbow, on vocals, uh, Jens Johansson on keyboards, Anders Johansson on drums, and Bob Daisley on bass. It was produced by a guy called Jeff Glicksman, uh, who had also worked with the likes of Kansas, Magnum, Saxon, Black Sabbath, and the Georgia Satellite. So um, some uh, good production going in there. It was, 
I think the album where Ingve became a little more restrained, but I'm sure we'll talk a bit about that uh, later. And um, it was certainly his most commercial release to date. It ex- did expand his fan base, but apparently had some mixed reactions from his uh, diehard uh, older uh, fans. And yeah, amongst the critical acclaim, it got a 4K review by uh, by Mick Wall in Kerrang. So, gents, any opening comments? Yeah, I have. Um, so I went to the bar in the guitar solo in track two and didn't come back until track 12. Do you know what? This is the worst. This is the worst thing to feel about an album. I feel completely indifferent about it. I think it's an entirely forgettable twelve tracks with one or two exceptions. So um, it got to the point where I, I, I felt compelled to time the guitar solos because I wanted to know how much of this album was actually guitar solo. Do you know how how in minutes? So this is. 50 minutes and 30 seconds, I think. Something like that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 50 minutes, 30 seconds. So how many minutes do you think are actually just guitar solo? And by guitar solo, I'm defining that as there's nothing going, there's no, there's no vo- vocals going on, all right? So it's just where the, where, and it's, it's not where the lead guitar is following the riff, it's where the lead guitar is doing something different and there are no vocals. So how many minutes? It's got to be 15 minutes, isn't it? I'd say, yeah, I'd probably say about a third, yeah. Yeah, it's it's 18 and a half minutes of guitar solo. Do you know what the problem with this album is, I think, is that it is what a lot of albums in the late 80s were. It's overblown, self-indulgent. There, There is just, it, it's one massive ego trip. And it's not helped for me by the fact that I don't like Joe Lynn Turner as a singer. Uh, I think he's a poor man, Steve Perry. And... Um, uh, and I've never liked anything he's done. I mean, I, I couldn't listen to Rainbow when he was in Rainbow. I thought Deep Purple were anything but Deep Purple when he was briefly uh, with them. Do I dislike the album? No, but it, I, I find it supremely irritating because Malmsteen is just all over it in a way that is just not good. And, and I'm really sorry, but I think we find I think Vixen finally found somebody to take on the bottom slot of the Hall of Fame. Hallelujah! I, um, I it's funny that because I actually think that um, I actually think Joe Lynn Turner's voice is the redeeming feature on this album. That, maybe that just says not much, not an awful lot about the album. Low bar. Yeah, quite. Yeah, I do. Um, I don't mind. I, I, I can listen to eighteen minutes of lead guitar if it was Eddie Van Halen or someone like that. You know what I mean? I could happily listen to eighteen minutes of Eddie Van Halen or Jimmy Page or, or Richie Blackmore. No prep, no no questions asked, no problem at all. I came into this album new. I'd heard one track. I'd, I'd played a track at um at a sad night from the previous album trilogy. You don't remember? I'll never forget. And I thought it was brilliant. And Julie didn't play another track off trilogy, so I've no idea what that album's like. Moved on to this, so you know, with not quite a spring in my step, but you know, on the presumption that it might be quite good. And whew, well, yeah, it's um well, there's not a lot to say really. <laughs> There's a lot to listen to, but not a lot to say. So, yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see. I'm really interested, Richard, to know what you think about it now because because you chose it, and I and I, I deliberately haven't asked you over the course of the week why you chose it. This is not an album that I listened to and thought, yeah, I can I can see Richard would really like this. It feels to me like an album that maybe you've listened to three times and gone, 
yeah, it's not great. But maybe you love it. I don't know. I don't know. Of, of all of the stuff that I found and listened and listened to, and I must have listened to, you know, I don't know, probably twenty or thirty uh, snatches of albums and, and bands. This I thought was interesting. Yeah, I've never been particularly fond of Ingve's style. Uh, I respect it. I mean, he's an unbelievable uh, musician, and I do think that on this album they have managed. I could, I could imagine a um, someone standing with him, holding his hands off of the guitar. <laughs> so not yet, not yet. Okay, go. Um, uh, and and so I think it, you know, compared to some of the other stuff, it is it it is more restrained. Um, my opening comments. Um, I don't think it's a bad album, but I don't no, I don't think it's 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 unbelievable. Um, but let, let's uh, let, let's let's leave the rest of that to um, later, as, you know, after we've been through a few of the tracks at least. So we start with the first track, which well, well at least it's the album, the the, al- the band's title track, I guess, being Rising Force. And I, I, I this I think. Well, no, well, it's, it's probably my joint favourite track of the album. Uh, I think it's, I think it starts off uh, pretty well. I, I, I like it. I think it's, got, it's got a great riff, and it's a really, really good start with the drums. So, yeah, I, I, I like this track. Yeah, I couldn't agree more about the start. I think it's, um, it's a blinding start. It's, um, you know, almost thrashy, isn't it? In its, um, in its, in its speed and ferocity. But about three minutes in, I'm thinking, I can't put up with an album full of this. <laughs> it doesn't take long. I'm just thinking, for fuck's sake, because you know it's fast drumming. You know that when the Ing gets a chance for a guitar solo, he's going to try and match that pace and beat it, and, he, and it inevitably does. And I'm just thinking, slow it down, man. You know, put some um, put some finesse into it. We know what an incredible guitarist you are, but, um, you know, just slow it down um, because it's it's just it's just one of many many Malmsteen solos that we will come across in this album that just lacks any finesse or, or direction really and it's um you know so therefore what started off as a really good track is ruined by the bloke whose band it is. <laughs> that's that's the line of the night. <laughs> um. Yeah, um I think my issue with this, and this this will be my issue with most of them, is that this could be any band in 1988. There's there, this is in for me, based on all of the other listening that I uh, that I did at the time, the albums that were released at the time. I just think this is entirely derivative. There's nothing new in here, or or oh Jesus Christ, there he is again. Fucking hell! The big problem with this album is that he produced it. There's nobody, you know, we talked about this last week, didn't we, that with Dio producing, and we mentioned you mentioned it earlier in the, the show, Richard. There's no accountability in the studio here. This is just Ingve J. Malmsteen having a wank. And and it it drives me fucking mad. By the time I want to throw my phone through something by the time we get to the end of this track, because it just it's just like stop. Just stop now, please. God, no, it just, it's all over it. It's, it, there's no, you talk, I think, rightly, Richard, about air. There's no air in this album. I, I, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I, 
I always thought that uh, you know, Ingve's style was was not to my liking. But is it, it, this is just a style we don't like. Are you? Too, are we being? Are you being too closed-minded about it? Possibly. You know, the, he is an incredibly gifted musician. Uh, and he's clearly a you know a devotee of of Bach, and you know he clearly has a very classical reference point for his music. Yeah. Great, fine, completely get that. The irony for me is in the fact that the best musicians in the world understand when less is more, and that is not in Ingve's vocabulary. You remember Lemmy's old thing about everything louder than everything else. This is this is everything more than everything else. You know, okay. whatever I did in the last track, I'm gonna do more of that on the next track. So maybe I am being a bit closed-minded, but I think this is his flaw. You know, maybe he is a flawed genius because he is a genius musician, no doubt. I haven't got a problem with that. He's surrounded by, I think, quite quite ordinary um bandmates uh, i think jeff scott soto is a better vocalist and i actually quite liked their first album even though the same stuff irritated me but i prefer jeff scott soto's voice so that's probably what that's about yes i'm probably being i'm probably being slightly unfair but i have tried really hard to kind of put that to one side and go all right, let's let's listen to it for what it was in 1988. I'd rather listen to Britney Fox than this. I, I don't. I don't think you're being closed-minded at all. I, I, and I, I just think we're. I think we're being right. You know, I'm, I'm critical of it. What, what I make of this guy is that he's clearly, and we've all agreed, you know, the bloke's a sensational guitarist who just doesn't quite understand the role of the guitarist in a rock band. You know what I mean? It's it's good. The 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 the, the the sum is greater than the parts, and he's not quite figured that out yet. You know, it, it's um, he should be he should be starring in any band, but he doesn't because he just knows he knows how how well he can play, and I think he loses any sense of of songwriting or creativity because of that. He just it's just all about showing off for 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 want of a simpler phrase, and it's um. And I just don't think he quite. I don't think he quite appreciates. He appreciates how good he is, but not his place in the in the band. I don't think. Well, you know, there, I think there's also it's quite telling that there is only, uh, with the exception of one song, there's only one songwriting credit. So his his fingers, fast and delicate and talented though they are have left their smudgy fingerprints all over this and and I don't think I think the I think the album suffers for it um yeah there there are some nice moments but they are almost without exception ruined by him like I say there's no accountability behind the glass that's the problem with this album mm. because a decent producer would have gone stop it stop it now I'll tell you when you can play and it's not now this is the result despite people saying stop. <laughs> probably. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think it's as I don't think it's as bad as uh, as you two, which is fine. Uh, I mean, hold on, it's it, I, I thought it was a bit AOR, you know, almost a little bit a little bit journey. 
Yeah, Jolyn Turner. He's a great singer, but I know what you mean around, I mean, again, a great technique, but he's not a singer that would ever make the hairs of the back of my neck stand up. So hold on for me is, is, is again, it's a, I, I can, I can hear Rainbow, this era Rainbow playing that. Is that because it's Joe Lynn Turner? Maybe. This has got 1988. It's got an air of 1988 all over it. 1988 was not generally, I don't think, a great year for this genre. And, you know, no coincidence probably that Vixen's album, debut album, was also released in 1988. True. Too true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, Hold, hold, hold On's an unremarkable track, isn't it? But it's, um, I found it a bit easier on the ear than it's done the one before it. I just thought... You know, I wanted him to sort of slow it down a bit, and it was like the message was received, but yeah, it's okay. So we're now into Heaven Tonight, which actually is is a another Rainbow song, but there's a sort of Rainbow mixed with a bit of Journey, but there is a bit of air in this, there's a bit of space in this. Yeah, a little bit, uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I quite like this. You know, it, I, that that would probably be pushing the envelope of my feelings about the album generally, but... This is all right. This is all right. I can listen to this and not get upset. <laughs> you see, this is this is what I want. I, I love this to bits. This, I'm, I've, we've got to track three, and I'm thinking, bingo. You know, we've finally hit the jackpot. I, this is what I, I'd anticipated when someone said, you're going to be listening to a Scandinavian rock band from the late 80s. This is what I wanted. But for future Broxits, we'll come to another, my favourite Swedish rock, ta- rock act, which is Treat. And this could have been written by Tree. It's a classic Tree song. Um, or it could have been written by um, Europe, even, or Don Dokken, any of those. Um, and this is where this is where I would love this album to be. It's Euro Cheese of that era. And I really like it. And no surprise, it's a single. I presume it was a single. It must have been a single. It's, it's just got single smudged all over it. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's a really decent track. But then I like Vixen, so I would, wouldn't I? So we're now on to Dreaming, where... Uh... Ingray picks up a acoustic guitar, at least for a little bit. Those first three tracks, particularly the first couple, I, I quite liked. I, I, <laughs> this is one I don't have much to say about. Uh, actually, it just it didn't really do uh, do much for me, to be honest. It's the album by numbers thing, isn't it? Track four. We haven't had one of these yet. We haven't had a slow ballady kind of thing. So let's tick that box, and then we can move on. It's really it's really ordinary. Although I, I actually don't mind Joe Lynn Turner on this. Because uh, he's more restrained, do you think? You mean? Yeah, probably. Probably because he doesn't sound like Joe Lynn Turner. <laughs> you know, I mean, no, seriously, that is what it is. <laughs> I mean, it turns into Joe Lynn Turner inevitably. Okay, so we've had Bite the Bullet, which segues straight into uh, right in the dungeon. Um, yeah, <laughs> I did feel with Bite the Bullet that it was, it was good. We, He's managed to restrain himself for four tracks, so uh, he was allowed to have uh, a minute and a half of whittling, and then and then then into riding the dungeon, which I like. I think it's my favourite track uh, on the album. Actually, I like the groove, the speed. It's a bit disjoint, I guess, but it did remind me uh, as I was listening uh, to it, and there is one a bit later on as well of of Dream Theater. It's got energy about it, and it's um. You know, we're a couple of minutes into it and we've not yet had the obligatory solo, so that's good. And you're desperate, aren't you? You're desperate, well, we are, trying to get ourselves back into the mindset of when this album came out. You know, we got to score it 
as honestly as uh, uh, and as integral. We've got to be honest with everything we do. You know, uh, you want to try to visualise what you were like in '88. Would you? Have, and, and I cannot, for the life of me, see me in 1988 just enjoying this. And you know, no one loved a no one loved a guitar metal act more than me. And I just can't. I just cannot see myself going anywhere near 4Ks. Um, but, you know, each of their own. Well, I mean, what, what was it in those late 80s then? Because did, did, did sort of this mainstream rock, you know, really, it, it started to lose its way? Because obviously, I mean, Guns N' Roses had arrived on the scene, hadn't they? Um, and, and, I mean, Thrash was really taking off. Well, grunge was around the corner, wasn't it? But but I think that was that was beginning to start up. And and so do do you think that this kind of sort of mainstream rock just started to flounder a bit? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it was. Uh, and it got to the point where I think public opinion and popularity was moving away from this genre by now, it to a large degree. You know, the hair metal. Uh, part of it at least and i think this this is all and it's not just about ingve and vixen all of the bands around this sort of time or the majority of bands around this sort of time were were just trying to get do everything bigger because they were trying to rescue um their own futures so i mean i've just pulled this up on google so albums that were released in 1988 new jersey shit shit album Open Up and Say Ah by Poison, shit album. Long Cold Winter by Cinderella, bits of it were quite good, quite a lot of it was shit. Skyscraper, fantastic album. Uh, Savage Amusement, Scorpions, actually a pretty good album. House of Lords, exactly just, you know, disposable kind of, you know, by numbers, hair metal. ACDC, Blow Up Your Video, not a great album, and that's coming from me, so there you go. Uh, Lita, Lita Ford, no. So far, so good. So what? Great album. 1988 also saw the um, the colossal Reach for the Sky by Rat. Shit album. Gin Our Lies, it's all right. Winger, Winger, not a great album. Lillian Axe, Lillian Axe, not a great album. Uh, Femme Fatale, awful. Uh, yeah, this state of euphoria, not one, not Anthrax's finest moment, I have to say. Ram it down, not Judas Priest's finest moment. Yeah, it goes on and on and on. And yeah, it's not a great time. It's not a great era for this. And, and I, as I say, I think it wasn't working, it wasn't working. So they did it bigger and they did it bigger and that didn't work. So they did it bigger and that didn't work. So they did it bigger until eventually they became parodies of themselves in a lot of cases, a lot of those bands, a lot of those albums. I mean, quite how you go from Slippery When Wet to that fucking shit fest is beyond me, unless you're trying too hard. Trying to, trying to, trying to become serious, trying to shift yeah. that image yeah. of, um, of disposable throwaway mid-80s metal, yeah, and becoming more earnest. Um, yeah, possibly, yeah. It was a, it was a kind of fallow, fallow year or two, wasn't it? It was odd. However... Now we've moved on to Crystal Ball, which I love. Why is that? Because I think it's measured. It's more measured. The, the guitar solo still pisses me off a bit, but it's not as twiddly and wanky and self-indulgent as I think quite a lot of the stuff on this album is. It's It's got a nice riff. It's got a nice hook line. The bridge is good. 
you know, it's actually quite a solid song. I, I would put this, I'll go further and say, I'd put this on a Spotify playlist. Yeah, and no, I'll go along with that. I'll I refer the honourable gentleman to the comments I made some time ago about um, Heaven Tonight, because that's where I am with this. I've just got a lovely Euro anthem feel to it, and it'll do me just great. It's a proper summer Euro stonker. Crystal Ball is 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 the kind of the the highlight for me of this album. So we're now on track nine, aren't we? Now now is, is the time. I've actually not written anything for this track because I've got absolutely nothing to say on it, Mark. Um, no, I, I yeah, it, it's <sighs> no, you know you, you've got twelve tracks. You don't need to have twelve tracks on the album. Put put eleven on it. You just don't. Well, why? 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 So much of this album is why? Why did you do that? Oh, God, this is like you know, it's like Jerry and the Pacemakers, you know, with a guitar. Um, but I have to say, I remember when when you picked this, Richard, and, I, and I'd got this far, and I was looking at the running order. Yeah, and I, and I, I saw that the next track was called "Faster Than the Speed of Light." And I was terrified. I thought, oh, oh my God. <laughs> if if this does what it says on the tin, this this is gonna be a hard listen. <laughs> oh, I just I just don't know why this track's here. I think it's 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 polyfiller. Yeah, the, it's got a it's got a groove to it, a bit of a groove to it. The the main riff is 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 sound. But we, you're right, I think with you compare to how we were talking about the elements of a lot of the other songs, uh, you know, on the on the other albums. Um, yeah, a, through a lot of this album, it's slim pickings in terms of picking yeah. out the stuff that's uh, uh, that, that's good. So, faster than the speed of light. It's fast. Fucking hell! <laughs> it, I think it's a style thing, and I know we. Uh, I, I, I think we all, you know, if, if you look at our the, the guitar solos, or uh, we we picked on our biographies, although um, Steve did pick a Petrucci solo, uh, but I, th- I think we we do like our solos to be measured. His his arm solos, you could uh, you could get bang on air guitaring, could you? Well, this this interesting. This is where. Um... So there's a, there's a description of Malmsteen, isn't there? And I'd never heard of this genre. It's neoclassical. Have you come across that shit? Yeah. And, and, I'm, and I'm finally now getting a sense of what that kind of might mean with this track. There's a kind of, there's a big, yes. there's definitely a kind of orchestral feel. Richard, it's not me, is it? There's something going on here. That, um, yeah. So that's why it is, it is a, it, I, I think he is Marmite. It, completely Marmite. I think you either just think this is absolutely wonderful or you just cannot connect with it at all. But now we're getting all Wagnerian almost, aren't we? You know, all this sort of... Just, <laughs> Mark's just shaking his head. Don't you start. Wagnerian? <laughs> Fucking hell. Get uh, something to get with W. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think then... It is time to uh, to move on to the volcano. Uh, here we go, gentlemen. Here we go. Are you ready? I mean, for fuck's sake, a six-minute instrumental. Jesus. I mean, you're fearing the worst. 
and and I feared right. This is just navel gazing on the most enormous scale, and um, I loathe it. Absolutely <laughs> loathe it. <laughs> but what I don't understand, Steve, is you love dream theatre. Now I'm not saying this is anywhere near as you know the the quality of dream theatre. I, I I like them too. They're all unbelievable uh, musicians. But this is in the same area. And so what I understand is that you like dream theatre, but you can't get on with this? No, 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 Richard, no, I can't have that. I, I cannot have you besmirching dream theatre by mentioning them in the same breath as Ingve J. Malmsteen. Because, no, 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 I'm not even going to go there. But Petrucci wouldn't do this. Well, he would, but he'd do it better. <laughs> The best bits of this are when he's not actually playing on it. Yeah, you know, I was about to say, you know, if insert name of guitarist, if Dave Menichetti had done this, would and then I stop at Wood and I go, Dave Menichetti would never have done this. Yeah, this is just monumental onanism. That, and I think that's why I that's that's why I dislike it. Um, it's because it it is a. Everything on this album is is a pay-in to Ingwe. It's not about a band. You know, if, if, if this was a band, he wouldn't feel the need four albums deep to call it Ingwe J. Malmsteen's fucking rising force. Well, that's not what he called it, but you know what I mean. He is he this is this is just all about him. It's all about him. He's got absolutely no regard, as far as I can tell, for well, maybe he has. Maybe he's maybe he's just making albums for people who love him. Fine, okay. Um, in which case, this album wasn't made for me, and we can all move on. There's a track I it was uh, it's I, I I enjoyed listening to it. Okay, move on to memories. Thank God it will be. Steve's um, point just there around uh, let's throw everything in and anything to this album. Um, it almost sounds a bit Greek elements of the guitar in in this. Final track memories. I suppose it's just um, a nice, relaxing ending. Yeah, it's, it's just pointless. If, if, what, one of my favourite, one of my favourite modern bands at the moment is um, Persephone, an Andorran death industrial metal band, and they would do this as an interlude, and they do about three or four an album, shove them between tracks where they serve a purpose. It's all part of telling a story. This is just tagged on at the end, and I'm just left thinking, you know. Should we even give this a score? It's quite fitting that it's got Greek overtones because the whole fucking album's Greek to me. I've got no idea. Ta-da! This is the only album that we've got to where I found it a chore to listen to. Should we do highs and lows, gentlemen, or uh, or or lows and even lowers in in Mark's case? Uh, well, no, I've, I've I've got one high or two highs actually. So, um, well, let, why don't I start? Um, so for me, uh, I've got a joint joint low, faster than the speed of light, and the volcano. Um, I, I just don't I don't understand why you know, either of them are on there for different reasons. Um, so for me, that's a that's a, a, a catastrophic end to an album um, that didn't start particularly well either. Um, but uh, just edging out heaven tonight is Crystal Ball as my high. Yeah, we, we we think alike. Um, the, the the volcano has just spewed out too much shite when I didn't need it, and um, that's far and away 
Um, like, well, I say far and away, it's, well, it's a low point, but it's not far and away a low point. And I do like, um, yeah, I couldn't split heaven tonight and crystal ball. Love them both. A couple of big Euro singles. They'd look good on the Eurovision Song Contest. And um, yeah, they're my kind of things. Probably dreaming is in terms of a low point. And um, the my favourite uh, track having, you know, listened to this, what, now half a dozen times, um, was uh, right in the dungeon. Reviews complete. Initialising rating process. Okay, so uh, we've completed the reviews. Some albums fared better than others, I think it's fair to say. Um, but time to reveal the overall scores for the albums. Uh, starting off uh, right at the beginning, we were talking about Thin Lizzy's 1983 final album, uh, of their career, Thunder and Lightning, uh, the album that featured John Sykes. Um, Steve, you gave it? 8.3. Yeah, I was quite happy. I, I thought it was a fantastic album, and, and um, that's one of the highest scores I've given anything, and uh, nothing less than uh, nothing less than a 7. Okay, 8.3 from Steve. Richard? Yeah, I'll give it a 7.78. For me, it's up there with, you know, for example, uh, Rising by Rainbow. I, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a great, great album. And I think that, yeah, certainly um, we've all scored it, have we? I think our, our favourite of the night by a, a clear margin, haven't we? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I brought it along. It's, um, it's an album that I absolutely adore. So it's got a stonking 8.9 from me, which gives it an overall album score uh, because we add the three scores that we've each given it given each album and then divide by three uh, so the average score that it takes into the hall of fame is 8.34444 um so steve do you want to talk about um how uh balls of the war got scored yeah absolutely yeah so fast forward a few months to um accept classic balls to the wall and yeah, I, I brought it to the table, and you boys have liked it more than me. Rich, do you want to uh, talk us through your scores? Yeah, I mean, you and I were pretty similar, Steve, but, but yeah, I, I, I scored a, a 7.35 amongst the company that's keeping all these previous albums. That's a that's a pretty good score, yeah, and I'm, I'm quite happy with you know where that sits for me in my overall rankings. And Mark, touch higher? Yeah, a touch higher. Uh, I'm, I'm, I surprised myself actually because I think if you'd asked me, just in terms of my memories of the album, because I, I don't pay it an awful lot all the way through, I, I, I don't think I would have scored it out of my head um, as highly as I, I have. But actually, on listening to it over the last week, I've, I've rediscovered my affection for it. But yeah, I've scored it as a seven point eight one. Well, I, I said at the start that. I thought the track would eclipse the album. Um, and that's certainly how, well, the three of us agree on that. Um, and I gave it a 10, which is uh, my 10th 10 so far, Balls to the Wall, uh, the title track. and But the album overall, I gave 7.3, which, let's face it, is still a, a hefty score, but um, just, just a fraction lower than the new boys. Four, um, a total score of... Um, just a nat testicle shy of 7.5, 7.49, if you want to take out the recurrings. Uh, 7.49 for balls to the wall and accept, which leaves the wild card. Can we call it thus? <laughs> yeah. Rich, take us away. Yes, right. Ingve, um, how did you do? 
I'll, uh, I'll let me start with mine. I mean, I, I gave uh, Odyssey a, a 6.6. It's a perfectly decent album. Uh, and I'm, I think I'm quite happy with, again, how that score sits. But my 6.6 might have been the highest amongst the three of us. Steve, why don't you go next? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I gave it, uh, well, I gave it 6.35, which I thought was pretty generous. And yeah, there's, it's such a frustrating thing. There's so many decent moments on there. There's so many decent riffs. There's one or two good tunes, and it's just been ransacked by um, by Malmsteen himself and his um, self indulgent guitar playing. And uh, you know, to be fair, well, six point three five, I think, is perfectly fair. But um, and I, I knew from the off that it wouldn't be the lowest mark. Um, so talking of mark. Yeah, I, I no this <clears throat> no, just no, just say no. Uh, <laughs> no, this is a. I was going to say travesty. Do you know what? You strip the guitars out, the lead, or, you know a lot of the fiddly bit out. Strip a lot of the lead guitar out. Put Jeff Scott Soto back in the vocal, uh, in the vocal job, and you've got a really good album there. Um, and as you say, Steve, it has been absolutely butt fucked by. Ingwe Jane Malmsteen. It's just unbelievably overblown and self-indulgent. So it's got um it's got a five point well shade short of five point five, five point four nine um from me. And and in truth, that's probably generous. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Are you surprised to see Thin Lizzy there? I was. Why were you surprised? Uh, only be- only because I wasn't I wasn't sure how you two would feel about it. I knew how I felt about it. I knew you'd like it. I I think what this says is that, uh, and this comes back to we've said it time and time and time again over the last nine weeks. Um, it, this is about consistency, and the reason. So what we should say is that Thin Lizzy uh, are have gone into the hall of fame at number three so thunder and lightning now sits between deep purple's machine head and uh, journey's escape and the reason i think it's above escape is it's just a more consistent album that's all it is it's because the highs you know the, the highs on journey were high you know um i'm surprised to be honest i'm quite surprised that moving pictures is only at five as well so there you go but 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 that's the beauty of this it's it's the you know it's the coalescence of all of our thinking and that's why it's such a i think such an honest process yeah it's hard it's hard to be overly surprised i mean i still i I look down that list i mean we'll talk about accept and ingui in a minute but i see van halen van halen at 14th and think all right this is a serious list (laughs) I I, i can't think of another list where for example, Strange Ways would get above Highway to Hell and Van Halen. We all like it. I expected, I don't know, Mark likes it. I expected Steve to like it. Um, so I expected it top 10. I'm surprised it's um, it's up at three. But as you say, I think look, looking at Thunder and Lightning and Escape, the minimum average track score we gave it between the three of us, or so on both of those albums, was a seven. And I think that's you know that's so, so so to get into that you know top five, um, your weakest track 
has got to be around a seven. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's well, yeah. We, we said it. We thought it was going to be hard last the you know, previous episodes, didn't we? That to break into that top three, four, five. Um, it's going to be fascinating uh, to see what happens next week. Well, you think you think about when we come to a, a, an album like um, Load, for example, which we all love to bits. But take 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 a Ronnie track, for example. You know, that's not one of us got doubts about that. That's three of us, and suddenly that's a great album is going to suffer accordingly. But I mean, that's the nature of the scoring beast we've got, and um, you know, it is that way. And bear in mind that we've done what twenty-seven albums so far. Twenty-five of them have scored over seven. You know, we're not talking bad albums by any stretch, are we? So, in a in a a list of twenty-seven, Balls to the Wall finds itself in at seventeen, sitting neatly between Doomsday for the Deceiver and uh, the Ritual. Um, and you, you you can't get a Nat's hairy testicle between those three albums either. I mean, <laughs> what splits Doomsday for the Deceiver, Balls to the Wall and the Ritual is the sum total of 0.04 points. Yeah, that's what, so, that's what we're talking. The, the margins are just going to get finer and finer and finer, aren't they? Except possibly, except possibly the uh, the rear end, should we say? Which nicely moves us down to um, what is a, a red letter day for uh, the girls of Vixen. Mm-hmm. They're no longer propping up the list, um, which is good for them. Um, uh, and I mean, they have. They, uh, uh, Ingwe has found himself at the bottom, as I kind of suspected um, he would do, but he's found himself there by quite a big margin. Yeah, well, given our, as you're saying, in the middle of um, of, of this list, we're, we're getting into the second, even third decimal place. The fact that he's adrift by half a mark, uh, 0.5, um, is, is, is quite a big gap, isn't it? You're listening to the Enter Sad Men podcast. We're talking loud. All right. Well, that's another three entries into the Hall of Fame. Got their golden tickets, various places. Um, and we'll see what happens next week. That's it. Another episode of the Enter Sad Men podcast comes to an end. Ingre has gone away, bruised, battered, licking his wounds, licking his licks, and probably adding a guitar solo in. Uh, We have a new entry into the top three at the Hall of Fame and Accept have gone into a very respectable mid-table position, which is kind of where we all expected them to be. Um, So that's the Broxit episode of the, well, Broxit number one. There will be other Broxit episodes, I'm sure. Um, So that just brings us to what we're going to do next week. And I thought, lads, that um, it might be quite nice to take a list of the top 100 hard rock heavy metal albums, one of the many that exist. And I thought maybe what we should do is each of us should choose, we should use one list, each of us should choose one album from that list that we have never heard before. The others might have done, but we haven't. And um, and listen to those and uh, and judge those. And the only, the only rules are, one, um, you... you can't have heard it or you might have heard one track off it but you can't have heard the album in, in its entirety um it has to have been made between or released between 1970 and 1995 because that's the kind of the period we're talking about 
And as I say, um, it, the other two might have heard it before. That's fine. But whoever picks an album, it must be an album that they haven't heard before. What do we reckon? Yeah, sounds sounds like a sounds like a perfectly acceptable plan. Dependent dependent, of course, on um, the list, because as we all know, some of these lists can be very very good and forensic, and some can just be utterly lazy and shite. So, so presumably, we're going for the former rather than the latter, are we? Uh, well, what I'm going for, actually, what I thought we, we can have this discussion, but what I thought we might go for is the 100 best hard rock albums of all time, which is on Rate Your Music. So this is, this is yeah, your, your general Joe Public uh, choosing, rating their 100 top albums. Go with the punters. We all happy with that? Yes. Then that's what we shall do. So there you are. Uh, I'm going to call it Under the Radar. So, Under the Radar, number one, first of part one. Under the Radar, part one. Next week, three albums that at least one of us has never heard before. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 